Welcome back everyone to The Corresponding Author. My name is Stephanie Hicks and I'm here with my co-host John Michelli and today we have an extremely exciting episode for you today. We have um, a guest that we're interviewing, Ben Ackerman. He recently defended his PhD in our Department of Biostatistics at Johns Hopkins and we're really excited to have him here today to talk about all sorts of things. What does he think about data science in academia? How does he feel or how does he think about data science fitting in academia? Um, and we'll, I'll let Ben maybe introduce himself. Sure. And uh, when Stephanie says, I recently defended my PhD, that was yesterday. So Yay! Congratulations! <laughs> yes, I kind of feel like this is one of those, it's you a just won the championship, podcast. how do you feel interviews. <laughs> you go to Disneyland. Right? In this state of the world, maybe not. <laughs> and I'll just state, Ben is one of our superstar students, so oh. he's amazing. So we're really excited to have him. It's exciting to be here, and, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, but yeah, so I am a recent, well, I'd say I'm still a student. I'm still around, but I've, I've been in Baltimore for about nine years, did my undergraduate at Johns Hopkins in public health, and then came to the biostatistics department as a PhD student in 2015, back when John was still a student. <laughs> back then, yep. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, it's been a really exciting five years and very surreal to look back and think about all that's happened and all the time that's passed. Yeah. So speaking about all the time that's passed, um, data science wasn't really around for, I mean, maybe for like the last decade or so. Um, so I'm curious, could you give us your take on what is data science and also how you think about it fitting into academia? Sure. And yeah, it's interesting. When I started, well, certainly when I was an undergraduate, I had never heard mention of the term data science. Right. And I feel yeah. early in the PhD was when I would start to hear the term thrown around more. And then we had a data science course and curriculum right. that was developed, which yeah. has been really great. For me, when I started hearing about data science, I felt like, well, yeah, we're kind of doing that in a school of public health already. Uh, and I, I've always seen data science as bringing in the statistical methods and expertise with, I guess, some of the computer science and machine learning parts. And then I think one of the things that really is core to data science is some applied area or content knowledge in whatever the field is. Mm -hmm. So for me, coming from a public health background and working as more of an applied statistician, I, I sort of felt that, you know, biostatistics or epidemiology felt like what people were calling data science. Particularly in epidemiology, there are a lot of folks who have really solid content knowledge on a particular health problem or disease, mm -hmm. and then a lot of really strong quantitative skills or programming skills. And so I guess I always thought that epidemiologists were like the OG data scientists <laughs> in the health world, but so I see it fitting into academia pretty naturally, and I think a lot of the work that had been going on and gets done in, in an academic setting, and particularly in the epi and biostat space, fits nicely into what is now data science. So I'm curious, just following up on that, do you think to be a data scientist you have to be grounded in an area um, such as epidemiology or such as 
um, neuroimaging that John works in or genomics for me, like, do you think you have to be grounded in one particular area and to be considered a data scientist or how do you think about it? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like I want to give the epi answer of it depends, <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's a cop-out answer. I think it certainly helps. I think, I think the most important skill is to be able to ask the right questions and dive into a content area. So if you're coming at a new project or you're working for a new group and you've never done neuroimaging or genomics or any of the other health or non-health related fields, I think being able to ask the right questions to mm -hmm. get the background that you need to have the context of, whether it be the statistical problem or the prediction problem, I think knowing the questions to ask or how to dig deeper into the experts who have been doing it for a long time is really important. Right. And then certainly being in that domain long term, you retain information and you know, you don't certainly become a neuroimaging expert overnight, but over time I think being in that environment long term helps. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily need 100% to have the domain expertise, but for example, some of the stuff you presented yesterday with respect to surveys, like that's crucial because I feel like even with weights and things like that, if you don't understand how a survey was delivered, you it's very hard to analyze that data correctly, right? Yeah. So I would say, you know, a lot of the stuff is about reweighting your survey weighting to get towards a target population, which I think is a very um, not interesting topic now, especially in, you know, large scale A-B testing and sampling and that kind of stuff. Right. And so could you comment on like what you've done to the generalizability and things like that? Because I, I'm just saying, I don't know if domain specific knowledge is crucial in that, but definitely understanding the instrument and things you're using um, is required. Otherwise you're just kind of flying blind. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, the statistical expertise or having some experience with working with different types of data fit into data science. And yes, you might not be a, a cancer expert, but you know, similarly, I think with statistical topics, you, you know, being a generalist in some sense is helpful, but being able to know what types of questions to ask or how to pick up survey methods on the fly or maybe not on the fly, but within a short period of time and uh, you know, having a, a solid background in statistics to a point where you know what you don't know and can get answers or work with others or read part of a textbook. So how did some of that work? Yeah, how did some of that working with others kind of like develop like some of your collaborations? Yeah, uh, like with my thesis research or yeah. in general? Yeah, in general. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I definitely depended a lot on people who knew way more than I did about all of these subjects to be able to do some of the, the dissertation work. Uh, and so fortunately I feel my advisor is well connected to some folks who know more about surveys or have helped write some of the survey methods books uh, so that I could connect with them and sort of introduce the problem we're working on and understand what what from the survey literature is relevant versus what is maybe secondary information that I might not need to know for this particular project. 
So if a student comes to you, I guess as an undergraduate or a PhD student says, I want to do data science, I want to be a data scientist, what advice would you give them um, if they're either in a stat or a computer science program or a similar type of program, would you um, encourage them to take certain classes, do internships, not do internships? What would your advice be? Yes. All the above. All the above. <laughs> I think there are a lot of different types of experiences or programs that can contribute to an undergraduate student developing an interest and skills that are required for data science. For me, I think the biggest piece was going to graduate school and... Do you feel like you need a graduate degree to be a data scientist? I don't think so. I don't think you need one. I think for me, when I was coming out of a program in public health, I guess of the, of the core areas that I see in data science, I felt I had the strongest background or competencies in the applied health work. Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel I had any of the technical skills with coding. I had some through some undergraduate coursework, but I knew it wasn't enough. And similarly, I felt like I had some exposure to some statistical methodology, but not nearly enough to a point where I felt I could be thrown onto a project and know what method I needed to apply or how I might need to tweak a certain method if a if a method wasn't performing as right. well as it should. Right. And so I think, I think it's important for any student who's interested in data science to sort of look at, well, what are areas in which I feel strongest and what are some areas I feel I might need to either learn a little more or gain more experience. And I think for me, graduate school and a, a graduate program in biostatistics in particular was a useful way to fill that missing piece of some of the technical and the statistical aspects of data science, which I guess is a pretty big piece yeah. of it. Um, and I think internships similarly can fill that in different ways. So you did one for, I think, the Center for Social Good, is that correct? Yeah, it was a, a fellowship, and this was while I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. I, I did a summer fellowship called Data Science for Social Good that was at the time operated out of a center at the University of Chicago. I think they actually recently moved to Carnegie Mellon. Oh, nice. The, right. Yeah, the same guy who ran it at Chicago. Moved to Carnegie moved Mellon. Moved to Carnegie <laughs> Mellon and he oh, took nice. the, the program. I think he might have taken the center with him, but oh, wow. I, I, don't quote me on that. <laughs> I, I don't remember. but. Um, and they were trying to scale it to not really be university dependent and try to have international programs as well and, mm -hmm. and expand branding. But you get thrown in the mix with new novel data, novel questions out of the gate, right? Yeah, that was, that was an experience where they pretty deliberately tried to recruit about a third of the fellows from social science backgrounds, about a third of them from statistics and math, and then another third from computer science. Most were graduate students, but not all. There were a couple undergraduates, a couple postdocs, I think a couple people just working out in the world who right. wanted to spend their Join summer. On yeah. The and you know, there were certain things where everyone was expected to have some baseline coding ability in Python, mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun not knowing a lot of Python. Did you know Python before that time? I had taken 
couple online modules of Python. Got it. I had never used it in any of my <laughs> in research, practice. and I didn't know until three weeks before this fellowship that it was like a strict no R allowed, oh, no. only Python and SQL. So I ended up, most of the work I did for the team I was on was writing a lot of SQL queries, which felt a little more manageable and parallel to a lot of dplyr code, so I felt more comfortable. Right. But, yeah. Did they give a rationale, or is it just like made it easier for the mentors and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, they... I think the, the folks who run the program are computer scientists, and they do everything in Python and feel it's easiest for production, and they, they yeah. see R can be helpful, but it's just not their cup of tea. And, do you think academic departments should be teaching Python over R, or both, or combination, or does it matter? I, well, personally, I don't think it should be taught over R. I think R is really great for a lot of data processing, and certainly for statistical modeling, and data visualization. Yeah. So that's a lot of things. Right. <laughs> so for everything, I feel R is better, but I think a lot of data science companies and firms use Python, and I feel it's a good secondary language to teach and be familiar with, mm -hmm. um, but not in place of R. Right. And do you use, I'm sorry, do you, I didn't, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I asked, did you use Reticulate while you were there? I didn't. Oh, okay. Got it. I've heard about it. Okay. Because it was Python only. No, yeah. it's Python, Python only. only. Well, it's I've heard stuff. many people say, for example, that they are able to um, more closely work with their Python colleagues via Reticulate. It's an R package that you can use to leverage, inside the R language, uh, Python libraries. Yeah, and I've... I've heard about it, and it's sort of on my post-defense things I wanted okay. familiarize myself After your vacation. <laughs> yeah, it's like I want to make tote bags out of my fabric posters and right. pick up a few exciting new coding things and update ggplot and all that. Yeah, I would love to see a blog post on how do, how do I transform my conference poster into a tote bag. I think, I think a lot of people out there yeah. would, would you know, be I, interested. So I found one. There's already someone I saw on Twitter who had a, a blog post and they had patterns and instructions and I know nothing about sewing or any of that. So I'm excited to try to follow this blog post and maybe I'll write a blog post about a blog post of how, <laughs> if you have no sewing skills, how well you can. I thought it was going to be where I could send in my poster as long as it's this dimensions and they could send me back a token. Oh, like, I think I would pay for that. That'd be a great business yeah. model. Yeah. So I, I wanted to take this opportunity to ask, since John and I are faculty and you are recently a graduate of the mm -hmm. department, um, from your perspective, if somebody wanted to major in data science, what can departments or faculty do to better support students who want to go into that field? Are there specific things that would be helpful? Hmm. Did you say at the undergraduate level? Or? Undergraduate, graduate. Um, You've now recently experienced both. <laughs> yeah, and specifically data science over, say, biostatistics or statistics. Or... Um, well, I'm for this purpose, I'm interested in the data science aspect, mm -hmm. but I also welcome your opinions about biostatistics, too. Yeah. Since they're so closely overlapped. Yeah, and, and I guess some of my advice would be... Do both? For me, for both? Be, yeah, for both. Um, I think, similarly with biostatistics, 
data science attracts people from a lot of different backgrounds and mm -hmm. paths, and a lot of people have different strengths. So some may have really strong math backgrounds, some may have really strong coding backgrounds, some might come from social science background. And I think recognizing what people's strengths are and where there's opportunity to learn and grow and maybe where some of those gaps are and being able to support them in filling those gaps is important. And it's really tricky, you know, how do you create a program in an environment where you sort of want people with some baseline in all of these areas, but you recognize that people are all over the place and there might be right. really promising right. candidates or, or yeah. really talented young folks applying for graduate programs Very that so. are just right. missing a big piece of what this program is all about. And mm -hmm. so I think it's tricky to craft coursework and curriculum and rules that is both structured enough that it can say here are the things you need to know by the time you leave, uh, but also flexible enough to accommodate students who come in with different levels of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I think that's something I've thought a lot about in this program and in biostatistics, and as I think about data science, I can see that being a similar challenge. And I think, so I said support, sense. what is what does support mean? Okay, I, fair enough. I, I think, didn't really uh, <laughs> define that. Um, well, I feel like I, I throw on the word support, and I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> what does support um, mean? <laughs> but I, I think, you know, it can look like offering coursework that are at different levels or sure. bring people up to speed or additional opportunities mm -hmm. to learn if folks are more advanced in something already and maybe don't need to sit in on something that's a little more 101 or so there's I guess structural coursework support I think advising support and figuring out where students really fall in mm -hmm. these different areas and helping them see where they excel and where there's more room to grow to get to that point where a program wants them to be mm -hmm. and then with that, I think there's certainly a lot of stress around training. And so how do you also provide wellness support for students' mental health such that if they are falling behind in certain areas, how do you recognize that and recognize what that stress does to their well-being and their ability to perform in that program? Yeah, I think that's a good segue because you're the you're the co-president of the Mental Health Grad Network. So how yeah. did that how did that come to be? And tell can you tell about some is. of your work and what you've done? I know you've presented to our faculty meeting, but yeah, tell us. Yeah, so a couple years ago, well, maybe I'll I'll go back even further. So Johns Hopkins had a mental health task force put together a number of years ago, where they realized we're in a really stressful environment. Hopkins is a very tough school. And they wanted to better understand what are the ways in which students, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, are feeling this burden of mental health. And what are some of the barriers to accessing care? What are some of the reasons why students have such high rates of, of mental health problems? And so this task force produced some recommendations for what the university can do 
and what different schools can do to try to improve student mental health and well-being on campus. This was a university-wide task force? I'm pretty sure it was. It was. Yes, it was. I'm I'm like looking back at the report in my brain. I'm like, yes, there were things across different schools. schools. Okay. Yeah. And it was pretty comprehensive. And then out of it came a list of recommendations. And I think there have been a lot of different initiatives at different levels, whether it be university. I know the School of Public Health has done a lot around wellness and tackling different areas of whether it be barriers to accessing care, availability of timely quality resources for students that are free, Mm -hmm. um, tackling stigma. And so out of this task force, two trainees at the School of Public Health, one was a postdoc at the time, the other was a graduate student in the mental health department, she's now a postdoc as well, they decided to form this group called the Mental Health Grad Network. And uh, one of them, Wendy Ingram, came from a graduate program at UC Berkeley where she had some experience forming a certain or a similar group in her department where the idea was how can we as students who are you know, experiencing this burden of mental health and our, our classmates are experiencing this burden, how can we help contribute to building an environment that promotes better wellness practices and breaking the stigma and encouraging people to talk more openly such that it's not something that's normalized and expected in graduate school and in undergrad programs, but it's something we see as a problem, we no longer want to be a problem, and what are ways we can advocate for better access to sources, or what are ways we can help supplement initiatives at the school level or the university level with the student perspective, and to keep that central to all these initiatives. And so they formed this group Gosh, I think it was maybe two years ago now. And I got involved. I knew the other uh, co-founder, Calliope Holing, uh, through some coursework. And we were classmates in some classes. And she said, oh, we're forming this group. And I was like, well, I have a lot of thoughts on why graduate school is stressful and ways we can I feel like that's how it. always people get roped in. Like, yeah. you say you have a lot of thoughts, and they're like, okay, yeah. come join. I'm like, I want to not just complain about this. I right. want to do something that's productive. That's, and great. that's really great. Turns out a lot of other students in the school feel similarly passionate about not just wanting this issue to linger, but wanting to make a, a positive difference from a number of different angles. So it's been really exciting and we're, so we're just in the School of Public Health and our goal is to have representation from students in all, I think there are 10 departments in the school. Still working at that, but trying to represent all students so that we can recognize that there are differences and experiences in different programs and also different programs do certain things really well already, how can we learn from that and sort of spread all the information. So yeah, it's been, it's been really great and it's been really well received by faculty, by the administration, the university is trying to work some of our initiatives into their broader plan for improving wellness and um, That's great. Yeah. So so there's pass, a lot. <laughs> you're passing the torch? That's the goal. Now that I'm, I'm on my way out, <laughs> we're trying to also, you know, as a new student group, we're trying to make it sustainable so that we can have leadership turnover and 
also recognize that we're graduate students and have a lot on our plates already, and sure. how can we help make this difference without having our own mental health or well-being compromised. That was one thing I was going to ask about. It sounds like it potentially, I, I just from the outside view, could potentially take a lot of your time and energy. It does. It does, okay. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> um, does. How do you balance that with other things in your life, with school, with, I mean, your thesis? How, how did that work out? Yeah. Realistically, I think... I've budgeted a lot of time for it that okay. maybe could have been used elsewhere. But I was sort of at a point when I became a co-president of this group where I felt the research was coming along, I was on a good timeline so that I would have research I was proud of that I felt was thorough, that I could turn into my dissertation. And so, yes, it has it has at times been challenging to manage time and there have been moments where on top of everything, yes, I felt a little overworked, uh, which I see the irony in <laughs> trying to improve mental health and being stressed out by this effort to improve mental health. But, you know, it's really tough and I think, I think something I've also seen a lot from faculty too is, you know, there's sort of the work we have to do that we get evaluated on or that we get promoted based on, but then there's so much on top of that and it doesn't always get recognized or acknowledged, but right. it's still something we feel is important mm -hmm. to the culture of our workplaces or our departments or the well-being of our colleagues, the community. That we're the community. In. Right. And so, you know, unfortunately I think there is added burden on top of things and Balancing them has been tricky at times. But it's really hard. It's really hard to measure too, because in order to estimate the impact, if you were to turn that into research, for example, then you'd have to like figure out what kind of metrics you think are the best ones to say like, you know, yeah. you feel you have more access or more information. Have you used them and things like that? Which, you know, we we, we struggle sometimes to get course evaluations yeah. and things like that. So Absolutely. obviously, um, there's probably some missing not at random if we if we did some surveys on that definitely at the school and we've been thinking about that with the student group as well of how do we evaluate our impact and we're trying to keep that in mind but ultimately I feel we're not hoping that this is just something that will end up with some research or publication but we sort of feel if we don't do the most thorough job at evaluating all of this. We think that there will still be some residual impact yeah. that will be helpful. And just getting people to even talk about mental health and well-being, um, which is not to say everyone needs to open up about their own struggles or, you know, not everyone has to become touchy-feely, but I think, I think promoting a culture in which people acknowledge that there is a, we're in a high-stress environment and there are certain things that we might glorify or normalize that maybe we shouldn't. And working to a place where people feel more open to acknowledge that and discuss it. Are you passing this information along to a lot of the students and cohorts below you? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Oh yeah, um, definitely. And you know, before I even got involved with the Mental Health Grad Network, it was certainly something I've been thinking a lot about and and talking to students in this department about and so it's been really great to see 
efforts among students here also to just talk about wellness and well-being and I think you know we also have a very supportive chair who I think has been a huge champion of wellness efforts and Karen has certainly been fantastic and has contributed a lot to the mental health grad network efforts um, so I think I think it's been great being in an environment that's encouraging and supportive of, of talking about these things and trying to eliminate the stigma. So it's interesting, I mean, that you've done so much work in social good and mental health, and then your whole research is like a whole like rigorous you know, causal inference uh, set of frameworks that you've put out there. So do you think you know, your like, dream job would be to like, diffuse the two or kind of sometimes keep them separate in different domains? Or Yeah, I mean... Yes, I think I think there is a, a place in my mind where it would be great for those things to converge, and um, I sort of think whatever I do next, which I have no idea yet what I'm doing next, but um, having a positive social impact or being able to use the quantitative skills that I've either developed through my thesis research or that I've learned through my coursework to specifically promote efforts around wellness or mental health would be great. Um, I think you and your share of, uh, or you and your advisor were a great match because she is actually, I think her primary is in the Department of Mental Health, Yes, but does causal inference, so I think that was a great pairing. Absolutely, and I think, I think a lot of, I certainly have felt inspired by my advisor, and I remember when I first met with her, it was towards the end of my first year, I guess around now actually, at the time of year, in my first year of graduate school, I met with her. She gave a guest lecture in, I was taking a public health course in autism spectrum disorders research, and she gave a lecture and it just, it was so clear and so interesting, and she talked about some quantitative work related to autism, and I saw that she was also in the biostat department, and one of my friends in the department was working with her and I just felt like her presentation and her enthusiasm was so clear and a little infectious almost <laughs> and I just wanted to meet with her and be like what what are the things that get you excited what are the projects you are working on what do you want to work on and I had no idea anything about generalizability or causal inference before I met with her and she I don't think she was trying to give me like the hard sell on all of it, but in just talking about these problems and their relevance to public health and health policy and her excitement was just, again, I think, I don't know if infectious is the best word in, in this <laughs> day and age, but it was, it was inspiring and I saw the importance in that work and saw her enthusiasm for it and that made me excited about it and she was Full of, still full of so many interesting research ideas that all come from this motivation to, I think she's said at one point, to save the world through math, but uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, I feel really lucky to have found her as an advisor, and I think there were some things, yes, within me that wanted to make these positive 
impacts and differences and, and save the world through and man. save the world save through, the world through man. but it really had been through working with her that I was able to articulate those things and and realize them in a more thoughtful way and I feel so. like we need a hashtag save the world through math <laughs> hashtag the Stuart for president I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe not president but you know because she's doing so much awesome stuff here well, um, do you have any other advice for people in doing data science or statistics in academia? Yeah, I guess related to what I started to touch on, I think finding mentors and people who will both cheer you on and lift you up along the way are, is the most important thing. I think in graduate school especially, so much, and this comes up with the Mental Health Grad Network stuff, but so much of your time as a graduate student and so much of your well-being is really centered around your advising relationship. And I think, well, I know there's been a lot of research that's shown that having a supportive advisor and someone who makes it clear that they not only care about your research and academic success, but also your, you know, recognize that you're a person and that you're a person with feelings and your well-being matters is super crucial to being a successful researcher and I think that translates to being a successful data scientist too. Mm -hmm. I and agree. so again when I was looking for what I was going to do research-wise in graduate school and, and what I wanted to devote my four years, five years of research to, I spent I think way more time thinking about who the advisors were and how they advised and the happiness of their students and what they felt like at the end of their PhD than the statistical research or the content area specifically. That's um, an interesting, you, you, you kind of chose your own manager in, yeah. in some respects, which is a very, I think, novel thing, or uh, distinct thing in academia or in graduate school specifically, yeah. right? And I feel in this department, in this field, I had a bit of a luxury to do that. Um, there are certainly students who come in and say, I want to do genomics, and that's awesome. I had no idea what I wanted to do and sort of had a, a general interest in population health and developing or finding areas where statistics can be improved and improving them to improve population health. Um, but that looks like a million different things, and I think you can make the case for any of the faculty we have in this department why their work would fit with that. And Absolutely. so for me, you know, I felt really lucky to have sort of a position where um, I was, you know, I almost came into the PhD like as an undecided major, and um, but yeah, so I think being able to prioritize management style and you know that looks different for everyone so the things I might look for in what I want and need from an advisor could different could differ from my classmates and do differ from my classmates but I think when you spend so much of your time with your advisor and their research group and their collaborators that fit is key right very wise <laughs> well I'll also say I have a I have an older sister who also went through a PhD program oh. and she's been very supportive and encouraging and so she's passed on a lot of advice to me over the years and when I decided to do a PhD she 
was really helpful in not necessarily helping me figure out what I want to do, but figure out how to figure that out and what are things that I should try to prioritize or look for when I start graduate school. That's really important. I have a younger yeah. sister, and she also went and pursued her PhD, and I gave her a lot of advice yeah. about what it's like. Yeah, so everyone should get an older sibling <laughs> before they do a, a PhD. But I mean, I'm sure similarly for, for your sibling, that was invaluable. And mm-hmm. you know, whether that comes from a sibling or, I mean, I know it, it can be tough to find, you know, especially as an undergraduate, mentors. mentors mm-hmm whether they be faculty or student, but I think having a mix of both or, or being able to find both is really helpful. Agreed. Well, now that you're done, you can, <laughs> you're going to be the one passing the knowledge back, so... Yeah, um, I mean... I expect I, a lot more blog posts with all of this, covering <laughs> <laughs> these topics. <laughs> I'll try. Um, you have a lot more free time, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, okay. been one thing, that's been one thing I've, I've really... I've already tried doing as a graduate student as I become further along and now that I'm done like I feel very lucky for all of the mentoring that I had that you know I got very emotional (laughs) yesterday when I was starting to thank people and even since yesterday I've cried several times not in a bad way in in like a reflecting on how how special the mentoring relationships that I've had in all of their forms have been to my success and my well-being and so I see how much that's helped me and like John when I was a first year student you were a student on your way out like having you around as a student and and thinking about what the fourth and fifth year students gave me and did for me early on in my PhD and how how helpful that was you know that makes me feel compelled to do the same for new students and to pay it forward in respect. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Ackerman, for coming on this podcast and sharing your thoughts about data science, data science and academia, biostatistics, your work, your work in the mental health grad network. It's all been so impressive, and we're just so happy for you. And I'm sure you're going to go on and do fantastic things wherever you go next. Well, thank you. And thank you both for having me on this podcast. This is my first ever podcast interview and um but thank you for having me and then also as people who have been special mentors for me throughout graduate school thank you for always being there and for just making this experience so special well congrats again especially coming the day after you graduated (laughs) or you defended so yeah the victory tour now go enjoy (laughs) thank you all right thanks thanks everyone bye as always, you can follow us on Twitter at CorrespondAuth, or my handle is StrictlyStat, and Stephanie's is Stephanie Hicks, and you can email us at thecorrespondingauthor at gmail.com. This episode was edited by Jessica Crowell, and special thanks to the Data Science Lab for their help and support.